0: You can see it on television, you can see it online, you can even find it in the Oxford English Dictionary as a compound adjective, Monty Python-esque, meaning possessing the surreal comedy of the BBC sketch show, Monty Python's Flying Circus. It was created a half century ago by a half dozen amusingly off-kilter wits and humorists who then made Python a brand in film as well as television. One of them, Eric Idle, has to his credit novels and nonfiction, and perhaps most splendidly, the musical Spamalot, a Tony-winning Arthurian send-up, which is, as they say, soon to be a major motion picture. Soon, really. Idle lives in Los Angeles, and after one particular tour of the Huntington Library in San Marino, he was invited to make his 50-plus years of notes, scripts, libretto scores, and to-do lists a part of the Huntington's archives. Here he explains how it happened and why, and a few other subjects that are completely different. Donating one's paper sounds very grand. How did this happen?
1: Well, it happened because my wife and I, we sponsor us something called the Idle Scholar, which brings somebody out from Pembroke College, Cambridge, to Gilliam's College, Occidental, via the three months that the United Nations were the interning. So the first, girl, you know, we took the winner, a young lady, to, um, to the Huntington, and it was lovely, and then they showed us around the library, because we were all very interested in the new modern library, which they'd finished building, and they took us down in the crypt, you know, where all the, 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 where all the bodies of literature are buried, and uh, there were these wonderful air-conditioned rooms and these drawers that slid out, and there were these wonderful notes from great writers, and also from anybody, really, and so I thought, oh, this would be great. I'd love to to my stuff to be here. And they said, well, you can, you know, would you? And I said, of course, that would be fun. So that's where we've gone very, you know, bit by bit.
0: It's like the poet's corner of California.
1: (laughs) Well, the comic's corner. (laughs) (laughs) But it's quite interesting going through your lockup because you find all sorts of little gems You know, there's a lot of Python stuff, you know, original scripts and typed up first versions and all sorts of stuff which is of interest to everybody but me. I actually really wanted to be in one of those drawers myself because it's so pleasant and air-conditioned in there and something to read, you know. <laughs> but, but I don't think they do that yet. <laughs> it's only a matter of time. Yeah, I do have one line which I'm very, very proud of and it's called The Medical Love Song. And it says, I left my body to science, but I'm afraid they turned it down. <laughs> <laughs> I think that sums me up anyway. I'm going through the stuff too, because it's uh, of interest to me anyway. And uh, finding out old scripts and things you've forgotten you've written. And, you know, there's a lot of stuff. And there's nice letters from people, you know, in the days when people wrote letters, there's stuff from Mike Nichols and Carrie Fisher and, you know, really funny stuff that people wrote to me and Michael Palin in letters over the years. You save them because you don't think they should be thrown away, but they're not much use to anybody except somebody researching who knows what in the future.
0: Among the papers must be material you used for your sort of biography of 2018. Now that it's out, do you look at that book and think, oh, I forgot all of these other things. I have to write another one.
1: Well, yes. Yes, there's a whole part of my life I left out, which I'm working on now. I think people like the anecdotal qualities of them. Are you telling funny stories about funny people? And that's entertaining. And of course, in a lifetime of my lifetime, 76 years, there's a lot of stuff. And I'm sure I'll come across things that will remind me of things that happened, you know, letters and incidents. So I, I look forward to that in a way going through it.
0: You speak of the scholarship that you're sponsoring. And there is at Emerson College a comedic arts BFA degree that's offered. Wow.
1: Are they looking for, an? Uh, you know, do they give tenure? <laughs> Where is Emerson College? I'm very... Uh, it's
0: it's 3,000 miles the other way. I don't know that oh, you'd like it. the
1: cold zone, right? No, no, I don't go... I don't do cold anymore.
0: <laughs> can comedy be taught? Well, it can be learned,
1: put it that way. And I think the great thing of the Footlights Club in Cambridge was you learned... By watching other people be funny and doing it, and then trying it yourself, writing or going on stage and trying to be funny, and then getting laughs or not laughs, and it weeds out the people who are not funny, <laughs> you know, who think they're funny, and then get silence, and it's hard for them to continue arguing that they're funny when there's silence. So in a sense, yes, you could teach comedy. I think it's interesting now because it would be hard to teach it now because you can't say a lot of what we used to find funny (laughs) in my lifetime, anyway. And I think comedy does pertain to the moment. So you have to listen to what's acceptable to be said now because things change. And the point of comedy is actually supposedly to change them by recognizing such things are absurd.
0: Is there a distinction to be made among comedy, humor versus wit, say? Are they different things?
1: Yes. I'm very fond of wit, and I find it everywhere. For example, Matthew Bourne's Swan Lake, currently on in L.A., is witty, specifically witty. It's not just, it isn't funny, it's not being gross, or it, it's kind of witty, because it's commentating on things it assumes we know, commenting on it, and it's nice for that. I like that. I find it in all sorts of things. Some people's photography is witty. I think you'll find it in paintings. Some, there's some wit in and I think the essence of wit is to comment on the moment and to draw other sources into it, referring to other sources.
0: And comedy is broader? Oh,
1: yeah. Comedy contains many things. I mean, it would contain slapstick. It would contain you know, it different types of styles of comedy. And I think in many ways, Python was fortunate because there were five writers and one animator, and each had a slightly different style of comedy, so that it's a sort of portmanteau. Of comedy things, and if you don't like that thing, there'll be something else along in a minute or two, quite different, or co- completely different.
0: <laughs> <laughs> You've lived here for quite a long time, have 25 you? Twenty-five se- years currently. Have you seen and thought about the difference between British humour, comedy, wit versus the American version?
1: Well, I, I think they've both lost their sense of humour. <laughs> Mad as hatters, both countries have gone completely bonkers. But I used to say that the difference between uh, uh, um, English and American humor is that American humor paid better, which is also true. But uh, I think the English are much better at making people laugh at themselves, at yourself. They invite you to be laughed at. Whereas American humor, if it gets on television or in films, they tend to want to be taken seriously and loved as well as laughed at. And the English don't fall for those two things because they're both weak in comedy. If you need to be loved as well as being funny, then that's not good at all. It's being like wanting to be liked as well as throwing up <laughs> all over the place. You know? <laughs> I don't think Python ever tried to be likable. In fact, I think it was the opposite. I think we were very happy when we managed to offend people. And it, it's slightly sad to me that nowadays everybody kind of likes or they don't know Python. In England, they haven't had Python on since it finished. I mean, the BBC don't play it. But we're on in the rest of the world. We're always on in America in some form or another. Now we're on Netflix, which is really extraordinary. So I think the films have lasted too. But the series has just been redone digitally, so it's now enhanced extraordinarily from the sort 70s, and it's very nice. I mean, it's far brighter and smarter than it was when it was first released.
0: And yet people are not offended anymore there feeling cuddly toward you?
1: Oh, I think offense is only a matter of time now. I think they just haven't got round to us, really. We always try to offend. That was the point of it. And I think part of comedy, it should be offensive. It's, if you want
0: to wake people up, you know? Well, it has to be seditious. I think it's always seditious,
1: yes. I agree. The most extraordinary things to us were, have been like that it went to America and the Americans loved it. That was always a given with us that they would never get it. It would be too local. The references would be obscure. So I, I'm amazed by that. And amazed by the fact that people are still talking about it and watching it 50 years later, which it was the 50th anniversary this October. That shouldn't be. When we were doing it comedy 69, we weren't looking back at the comedy of 1919 that much, you know?
0: Oh, hilarious year, 1919.
1: The flu, you mean. <laughs> <laughs> they, they stopped killing each other long enough to get the flu. I think laughter and death are very close. I mean, I know that from my song, which is Always Look on the Bright Side is the number one song at British funerals.
0: And at soccer games.
1: I understand that because, but although it was once taken up by a team which was so successful, they had to drop it because it can only be sung when you're losing. It doesn't work when you're winning. And why funerals? I think because it cheers people up and it also mentions death. And... People write to me and they said, somebody died, their father, their uncle, people died and they went along and it just lightened the mood for them. You know, it just gives them permission. And I think laughter at a funeral is very, or a memorial certainly, is very important because it takes that tension off us and reminds us that we're still alive and things are funny. And in the end, we are the butt of that joke.
0: There are people who try to be funny, as we were saying, and people who succeed and those who fail. Is Boris Johnson funny, for example?
1: No, no. no. He's laughable, but not funny. Um, <laughs> but I, I was talking to uh, Bob Newhart the other night, who I, I went and adored and then co- cornered him for an hour and a half because I love old comedians, you know. And we were talking about what Buddy Hackett said about comedy, which is very nice. He says, I wouldn't trust anybody on comedy unless they'd walked the 15 yards. It means from the curtain in the wings to the microphone, and that the only people who can actually talk about it with importance are people who have actually done it, and I think that makes it does make it different as a form. I mean, we of course never did improv because we were writers, and our improv is in the writing room and in rewriting everybody rewriting uh, suggestions and throwing out ideas. Once we were taken in Canada and they gave us a room with a tele- four television cameras and some props, and they said, "Off you go then." And we were awful. It was like, what do you mean make it up? We don't do that. <laughs> we're writers. <laughs> and that, I think, was the essence of, of Python. It was a writer's group. Only writers were in it. And I don't think there was ever a show where the writers were in charge.
0: What is the status of the Spamalot movie? Th-
1: yeah, no, no, we've got it all ready to go. And, of course, talks was swallowed by Disney and everything came to a, a grinding, um, I've got the greatest director on Broadway waiting to do it. It's Casey Nicholaw. He's got so many hits on Broadway, but he was our first. He was a choreographer. It's Mike, me, and Casey made the show. So we're so keen to do this because it's so not. It's anti-Cats. <laughs> you know what I mean, it's like I think there's a big market, and it certainly doesn't cost two hundred and forty million dollars. I think the great thing about Cats is it will become legendary as being hilarious.
0: I think inadvertently hilarious.
1: Absolutely, inadvertently hilarious. You know, we want to make bats. But, uh, <laughs> I, <laughs> but, but sadly, we're too old to do anything much. We want Spamalot to be made, and it's in very good shape. The musical still goes all over the place. It opened in 2004 in Chicago, so it's 15 years, and it's still going strong. I think it's inevitable it will be made. I hope it's made while I can still be around. It's not very expensive. But it is a musical, and it is funny. But So there's three strikes against it.
0: <laughs> did you ever step into the Christopher Hitchens fray about women not being funny, and do you want to?
1: Oh, absolutely. It's completely wrong. Probably the only good thing I did in my life is when I was president of the Footlights at Cambridge, it was men only. So I immediately became president. I changed the rules and admitted women. And then the first woman was Jermaine Greer. How about that? Really? yes the female eunuch, which is an odd title because she had more balls than any man I ever met. She was hilarious, hilarious. And she was very subversive. She came from Melbourne University with all sorts of antipodean habits of enjoying yourself. So, yes, she was really funny. She did a nun stripping. She would come on stage and she a nun and then start stripping. Um, <laughs> that's pretty subversive. And then she would just, in the end, she'd get down to a bathing costume and then put flippers on and then go off into the sea. You know? so, like,
0: <laughs> comedy is a good means of making a point that people wouldn't listen to if you just tapped them on the chest and said, now see here.
1: Yes, but I think making points is sort of a secondary thing. When it starts to lecture you, I think it stops being funny. In current news, most of people get people's news from comedy which is really bizarre if you think about 30, 40 years ago. There was the news, and then there was comedy. Now it, it's sort of all mixed up into one, for the, in the late shows anyway.
0: I think the pioneer there was that was the week that was.
1: Without a doubt, and we were at university when that came along, and uh, it, changed, it changed the way things were, and it also caused the collapse of a government. And In fact, in, in England, they took it off the air during the election. Yes, of course, because it would influence people.
0: So a Cambridge man is now living in California, and the archives of his comedy work will be joining the Huntington's other English treasures like Gainsborough paintings and Shakespeare folios.
1: I think the Huntington is an extraordinary thing, and if people don't know it, I discovered it in the 80s when I would go for tea because they have the greatest tea shop. I remember in March two thousand and three when Bush started bombing Baghdad that I could hear these sounds and you look on television and it's like they were bombing the valley. They had these smart bombs which were apparently going to avoid children. And we were so depressed we just drove to the Huntington and sat in the Japanese guard. And it's just a place that's so spiritually calming and I just think it's a beautiful and a marvellous place. It's one of the major benefits of living in LA. And they're mad enough to take our papers. <laughs>
0: Some things in life are bad They can really make you mad Other things just make you swear and curse Pat Morrison Asks is produced for the Los Angeles Angeles Times by Pat Morrison. It's edited and engineered by Mike Heflin. Always look on the bright side of life Subscribe to Pat Morrison Asks and you will never miss a podcast. Always look on the bright side of life Always Look on the right side